0: Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is in theatre. He's been an actor, director and writer. He's produced 25 plays and musicals. He's the founder and leader of the West Dean College MA in creative writing. During the lockdowns, he wrote two and a half novels, of which The Coming Darkness, a cli-fi thriller, will be the first to be published. In fact, it's come out just this week. Greg Moss, welcome to Meet the Writers.
1: Hi, Georgina. Lovely to be here.
0: It's really great to meet you because I know your wife, Kate Moss, who has been hugely instrumental in the development of the Women's Prize and in various initiatives just to push literature front and centre for as many people as possible. She's done an incredible job, but then preparing to interview you, I see how very much a part of all of that you have been.
1: Well, let's just not lose the focus that she has done all of that for me as well as many other people. I couldn't have done what I've done without her.
0: Well, it sounds like the most wonderful partnership, and I know that you met at school. Tell us about that.
1: I was on stage. I was cast in the role of Bobinot in La Vie Parisienne, which is a a very old-fashioned operetta by Offenbach. And so there, there I was, the orchestra was tuning up or something, and there was a pause, and my friend John was telling me about all the girls he fancied. And, of course, he was a 16-year-old boy, so that was all the girls, every <laughs> one of them, one after another. Anyway, he got to the end, he, he reached the pinnacle of his crescendo, and he said, but my goddess, Greg, is Kate Moss. And I said, oh, who's that? And he pointed down into the orchestra pit, and there she was. And that was how I was introduced to Kate Moss.
0: How wonderful. I (laughs) know,
1: I know. Poor John.
0: (laughs) Now, of course, she shares a name with a supermodel. She's not that supermodel. But not
1: a spelling. Exactly. So we must all differentiate ourselves in the way that we can.
0: <laughs> uh, so you met Kate. You're at school, but then you drifted apart. Tell me what you did with your it's life. It's
1: university, isn't it? University. I mean, we've we've lived a lot in France, and I guess if you if you're from Toulouse, when you go to university, you will go to university in Toulouse. But we don't have that system. We have a system where we are young people they scatter across the country kate being very brilliant academically went to oxford and i because i was bitten by this theatre bug went to goldsmith's college in South East london and i was completely drawn in to that uh, rough and ready london fringe theatre scene Uh, whilst she was studying Beowulf and other esoteric texts.
0: And you went on to work in fringe theatre.
1: Yes. It was the first time I'd ever had independent purpose in life. Do you know what I mean? Because if you put on a play and you try and get a review in Time Out or City Limits, which were the major listings magazines back then, it's all on you, isn't it? Even if your venue is only 36 seats, as... Uh, the one that I ended up running was a wonderful room above a pub, a Victorian pub, you know, one of those double ballrooms with huge wooden folding doors that separated the audience from the floor stage. And it was, like I say, incredibly satisfying, and it was all down to us and in for each individual person who put a play on who was part of the theatre company, all down to you to make the best of your talent an opportunity it taught me the value of entrepreneurial behavior i don't know people people often talk about entrepreneurial behavior as being very competitive but in my experience it's cooperation and enterprise that gets the best results
0: mm-hmm. Mm. particularly in that kind of theatre I, I was an actress spectacularly unsuccessful but
1: <laughs> I can't see that, come on
0: but also in French and it is very much yeah, it's collaboration across the industry and of course that's something you've continued with in your later life
1: it's, it's true, could I just say there's another thing there there's spark isn't there, you do need that spark and I think a lot of people who are good decide they don't have the additional spark to distinguish them, it's in Mrs Worthington Noel Coward says her personality is not in reality exciting enough inviting enough for this particular sphere and it's that special thing that the best performers have Mm. uh, regardless of I don't know their singing voice or their physical poise or whatever else they might have.
0: That's so true. Greg you've also worked as a translator I'm trying to see where that fits into your life.
1: Well what it was was I got fed up with being poor in fringe theatre and I took the decision that I would go to Edinburgh and I would do my it was early summer and I'd do my best to get myself in a theatre company that might need my services and would pay me better than I was managing to achieve from my own entrepreneurial activity so I went to Victoria coach station with all of my belongings in a bag in a rucksack on my back and including my passport as it happened with the intention of getting the overnight bus to Edinburgh and when I got there I discovered you'll like this I discovered the overnight bus to Paris was cheaper (laughs) so I went there instead. And the other thing, Georgina, was there was um, the sign, which was a very sort of, uh, back in the 80s, a sort of amateurishly drawn sign, chalk on a chalkboard, telling the punters what time the bus would leave, because apparently it was a slightly different time every night, depending on the tides and the ferries from Dover, because it was that system. Anyway, um, it said that I would arrive at Place Stalingrad at 7 o'clock the next morning, and I thought that was such an enticing... And atmospheric destination. That that was what I did, and so I got off seven o'clock the next morning, Place Stalingrad. I had my first café crème and croissant, and then I went to. I, I walked with these heavy bags, not very far to Belleville, which is also northeastern Paris, where I found a hotel for a thousand francs for a month, for the whole month of July. It was a thousand francs. That's about three pounds a day. And it was a a wonderfully mixed neighborhood, principally of Moroccan and Portuguese immigrants. So, not only was France a world I did not know and I found fascinating, but I was also surrounded by people that I had never met people with heritage and culture and interests. And I ate outside. The front door of the hotel, you know those big braziers that people roast chestnuts on in Leicester Square? There was one of those right outside the hotel, except they were cooking jawbones of sheep and sweet corn. And it was my first Belleville Parisian meal was lamb on the bone and roasted sweet corn. It was just a, a, a fascinating and and mind-expanding revelation.
0: And it is, I mean, you're talking about the spark, but part of that spark is curiosity, isn't it? And it's that willingness to engage in things that you have never come across before and to ask the questions.
1: Yes, that's true. And those things that you do engage with, they leave you vivid memories. And the things that you sort of mooch through passively, they don't. They don't leave a mark, do they?
0: No, no. All right, let's get back to Kate. Because you lived in Paris for a while, you went back to the UK, and that's when your paths crossed again.
1: I was coming back to the UK on a plane to Gatwick from Paris in order to uh, say happy birthday to my mother. So that meant that it was the beginning of November. And I sat opposite her on the train, which is the only important thing I've done in my life because out of that moment, that chance event, every good thing that has ever happened to me is due to that.
0: It's just wonderful. Can you imagine the sliding doors if you'd gotten a different carriage? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, you actually took her name. What's your real name?
1: Well, I left that behind deliberately because my father, my, my birth father, from whom obviously I inherit a name, was a horrible person anti-Semitic and proud of it, you know, misogynistic. I mean, everything you can think of. And so I have deliberately left it behind. And are now Greg Moss. I, I love that. But there's an interesting thing there, Georgina, isn't there? Because, of course, if we as a couple wanted our children to have that unity of nomenclature, well, then someone's got to change or you have an uncomfortable perhaps double barreled name or whatever it is that you might end up doing... It wasn't a big decision because, like I say, I had no allegiance to the name. So it was easy to leave behind.
0: I want to go on now to your work because there is so much of it <laughs> to talk about. And I think perhaps we start with your with your work in theatre, your work at the Criterion. Tell us what you do there.
1: So eight years ago, my very dear late friend Peter Clayton and I were sitting in the, in the garden in Chichester where we live, drinking a glass of wine And saying, if we want writers to feel at home in the stages of the West End, then we need to give them that opportunity. We need to let them be their creative selves on stage in the magnificent Italianate theatres of the 19th century. The Criterion Theatre was the first theatre to have air conditioning in 1870 because it's underground. Uh, The tube train on Piccadilly runs past slightly above the level of the stage. It's a a wonderful building. And it happened that Peter and I went to the Criterion because he, very fortunately, was a member of the board there. And the Criterion Theatre Trust has an educational mission alongside its mission to put on entertaining theatre in the heart of the West End. And we put forward this this project that we would invite writers, six at a time, to come in and spend six afternoons together on the stage developing brand-new scripts. We decided we would invite actors to come and take part as well. And our first team of four actors were two uh, women and two men from the Book of Mormon. So two Mormons and two Ugandans from that show who were all brilliant readers. And they've all gone on to great things, those four actors. They are incredibly successful, although at that point they were quite junior in ensemble. And we discovered that first run with our first six writers was very successful. And now I think we've reached 120 writers have been through this programme.
0: Quite extraordinary. And I mean, that's not the only way that you're involved in encouraging new talent. So tell us about your um, involvement with the Chichester Festival.
1: Well, Chichester Festival Theatre is the most extraordinary thing too, isn't it? Because it was built by the local people. And I suppose our most intimate connection comes through Kate's father, Sixty years ago, slightly more than sixty years ago now, Kate's father was a notary working on West Street, Chichester, and he strolled out of his office door one day for lunch and met Leslie Evershed Martin, who um, had the office's office, another professional man, and he said to him, did Richard, Leslie, I understand you're trying to build a theatre in Chichester, I used to be an actor, I'll do whatever I can to help. And 40 years later, Richard was still the company secretary. Is that not extraordinary? So all through the periods of Laurence Olivier, Derek Jacobi, Patrick Garland, and so on, right up to quite close to the present day. And that meant that Kate's experience of theatre, she is a lover of theatre, she's a brilliant writer for the stage, that was born really early because of that. her family's lifelong association. My association also began early, but... Um, I come from a, a a very different impoverished rural background. So I turned up at the theater dressed in my mother's tights to play a snake in Noah's flood, not really <laughs> knowing what was happening around me. I was probably about 10 years old then. But later it was the first job that any that ever really meant anything to me in my youth. I must have been 16 or 17 and I was for a summer stage crew. And that was that opened the doors of the incredibly invigorating theatrical magic of being in the dark space with the expectant audience opposite. Mm. I'm sorry, I think I've lost track of your question, but those things were important to me.
0: And of course, as well as being an actor and this wonderful facilitator and teacher, you've written many plays yourself.
1: Yes. Do you know what? The wonderful thing about a play is it's short. <laughs> you know, it I does take many, many drafts. When I... At the point at which actors read my play scripts for the first time, it usually says in the top right-hand corner, version 20 or 25. But then a one-act play might be 10 or 11,000 words, a two-act play, 20, 21,000 words, whereas the first draft of The Coming Darkness, my thriller, was 170. Now, have no fear, we have published a 98,000-word version of it. But all the same, in order to arrive at, at that, tight, compact, punchy, pacey, 98,000 words, I needed to write 170,000 words of The Coming Darkness because I had to explore the world so fully. And I think if you compare that to the writing of plays, well, I've probably written 30, 35,000 words in order to end up with 20. But anyway, the point is it's not unusual to write a 1,000 words a day. So that does mean you can have a first draft in a month of Mm. a play and you can't very often do that with a novel.
0: Yeah. You've worked in film too?
1: I have only really short film in terms of active involvement, but I have worked with um, writers on their film scripts. And that's a wonderful experience for me because I don't have, and I'm sorry to say this out loud, but I don't have any of the disappointment Because, of course, most film scripts, even commissioned, developed film scripts, don't get made. And I think I would hate that. The thing that is, again, magical about working in theatre is it's also incredibly cheap. If I can find a couple of thousand pounds, that's enough for a, a modest production, pay the actors, pay for the venue, and earn the money back from ticket sales. A worthwhile, creative, shared project that pays for itself. And, of course, if you want to do more, if you want to take it on tour and all the rest of it, well, you can do that. And I have. You know, I have spent much more money than that on shows and and successfully, you know, broken even with a little bit to spare. But, again, it's back to that entrepreneurial spirit. It's a thing I can do without having to ask permission. Mm-hmm. I need Just a theatre to say to me, yes, if you've got £1,500, you can have my theatre for a week. And I say, okay, let's do it.
0: You touched a little bit on the idea of world building, which you did for The Coming Mm. Darkness. But Kate's novel Labyrinth, of course, also has this huge kind of world within it. And that book's kind of taken on a life of its own. And I know that you're very instrumental in in running a a kind of website that supports that and kind of embellishes that world.
1: Do you know what? In the end, it got so big, we had to give up. Uh, So, yes, we created mosslabyrinths.co.uk and it was, at the turn of the uh, millennium, it was one of very few, perhaps the only writer website that had a a 3D world that you could visit in the form of an avatar and take books off shelves and so on. We worked with some sensational Icelandic coders who really broke phenomenal new ground in creating this amazing user experience. But Kate's idea behind it was really a question, Georgina. It was, can you, as a writer, before you've written the novel, while you're writing the novel, can you share the journey, the inspiration, the development of ideas, making the web of incident, can you share that with your readers whilst you're whilst you're writing it? And it turned out, yes, you can.
0: Extraordinary. I yeah. mean, it, the book has sold millions. It, it
1: has. But I think that initial thing that Kate did was immensely generous as well, because, of course, she was a well-thought-of writer, but she wasn't a celebrated writer by any means at that point. But she had the... The authenticity and generosity to share that journey wherever it might lead. And in fact her, her agent, Mark Lucas, and she they had they had a conversation about this project together. And they worked together, I think, from the very beginning, because they said to one another, Well, if it goes well, we'll still be friends. If it goes badly, we'll still be friends. So let's try. Isn't that, that's fundamental, isn't it? Absolutely. Let's try.
0: Let's try. Now, one of the things that you also do is letting people try, but also teaching people how to find their voice. And I often ask writers or teachers of creative writing if people can be taught to write. Now, clearly they can because you keep doing it. For instance, you you started the uh, MA in creative writing at West Dean College. What are the prerequisites for being successful in a writing class?
1: Persistence. Isn't that so? There's nothing worthwhile is achieved without persistence. Uh, Later on, obviously, luck is important, a breakthrough. My agent, who who represented and sold The Coming Darkness, it was somebody I met by chance at lunchtime, just a lunchtime with somebody else. And I happened to say, yes, I've written this thing. Do you want to read it? And he and his uh, – Jason Bartholomew and he and his partner uh, at the agency, Joanna Kalashevska, they both read it and liked it. And everything else has sort of come from that lucky moment. But if I go back to first principles, the, the MA I wrote for the University of Sussex, the University of Sussex validated and presented the degrees, and I taught it at West Dean College, was based in this, I think, simple idea – that most, most approaches to literature are, they're sort of modelled on being a critic of literature, discussing finished works that are already out there. And I didn't want to do that. So the MII wrote was, a, if we compare it to making buildings, instead of being brilliant critics of architecture, I wanted them to become builders, these writers. I wanted them to make the bricks and pile them on top of one another. I wanted them to be aware that there would have to be a staircase and a drain and a toilet and a back door and a front to their novel. I'm extending this metaphor beyond its capacity to instruct, perhaps. But the the point is the method that I have always used in all of my teaching is a story development method. It's not how good is this sentence Are you writing enough like, I don't know, Kate Moss or Ishiguru or Ian Rankin or whoever? It's about building the story. And then the second part of the question is, of course, how good is each individual at shaping the sentences and paragraphs? And I believe that this story development method can help with that. But it can't make you somebody that you're not. So each writer then has to find the one thing that they have that they can sell that nobody else owns which is their unique authentic creative voice mm. and again you can help people towards that but you can't you can't provide it for them you know wrapped up and tied with a bow persistence again they have to find it
0: do you think that a that an m a in creative writing or some kind of training or early shaping is necessary for a writer?
1: no, of course not i know I know plenty of writers whose books have improved as the years have gone by and they've become different people as they've been writing. We all know stories of of writers who change their name in mid flow because they they've become somebody else and they want to they want to reach their audience with this newly acquired or newly discovered or newly developed unique, authentic, creative voice. I think that the experience of being alongside other writers is often really valuable, but, and I know this will sound really childish, but only if they're nice to you. <laughs> only, if, um, only if they buy into what they perceive it is that you want to write. You see, that's that's the thing that we all do on stage at the Criterion. The actors that I've used over the last eight years, they're super well trained in this now. Early on, they used to we would read a scene, and this applies just as much to novel writing. Uh we would read a scene and the actor would say the actors would say, Oh, I like that very much. That was really good. And Greg on the other side of the table would say, That's not actually very useful to the writer. So do you have anything else you can And what my actors all do now is they say, that works in this scene. Is it an opportunity to do this in a previous scene and this in a later scene? And that's fundamental to the story development method because this method is all about weaving many storylines together and creating that wonderful suspense you get from a well-told story where you're not certain how they will all come together, those threads, in a single unifying climax.
0: I wonder how daunting it was, having taught so many people to write, to do, to come up with your debut fiction, your novel.
1: Well, I had no choice because theatre became illegal in the ludicrous and bungled lockdowns of our clown government. However, there I was in my chair, where normally I would be writing plays in order to produce within three or four months, you know, to have live on stage with an So no more audiences gathering together inside rooms. And I had to do something else instead, of course. So I didn't feel that I had anything to compare myself to. I felt that my purpose was to find that authentic voice for myself But also for the story I was writing. And that voice necessarily arises out of all of the biographical experiences that you and I have been discussing and others that it would be too tedious to go into. (laughs) But thinking right back to stuff like that wonderful Moroccan and Portuguese population that I met in Belleville in Paris 40 years ago, those extraordinary and fascinating people from worlds that I had never seen. And they are in a way some of the minor characters in The Coming Darkness.
0: Now, Lee Child, of course, hugely respected writer, says Greg Moss writes like John le Carré's hip grandson. Oh, I
1: love that guy. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Anthony Horowitz, a big, meaty, ambitious thriller, and it certainly is. It's set in Paris in 2037. So there you are again, having to kind of imagine yourself into something you don't know.
1: Yeah, you're right. Actually, the future is surprisingly easy to research, Any organisation, I mean, here at Monocle, you must be thinking about the future all the time, mustn't you? What will life be like for us in two years, five years? Fifteen years is not so far away. It's touching distance. It's today, but more so. All the things we're concerned about now, in my 2037 in Paris and North Africa, where the story is set, they are more urgent. And what that means, I hope, is that they are relatable but different. They are plausible and slightly breathless because that's the nature of a thriller.
0: It's about climate, as we've said. Obviously, some of the worst things that could happen are happening. You go into that, but you also, everything you've said about kind of equality and, for instance, Kate not changing Kind women are very much equal in this. They're not kind of glorified James Bond type spy women. It's a wonderful, wonderful, interesting book. And I wonder where you see it going from where it is now. But what, what what are your plans for it? Because it's clear to me it has another life.
1: Well, that's great. I'd love it to have another life. But the, the most important life is the life... So here's the thing. I was at a festival and talking to Ellie Griffiths and William Shaw and a number of other... Dorothy Coombs and a number of brilliant writers. And we had this very interesting question from the floor, which was, how do you know when your novel's finished? And I said... Good books are completed by their readers. Boring books are completed by their authors. There must be space in the story for the reader's imagination to engage, to wonder not just what will happen next, because inevitably if you turn the pages you'll find that out, but much more satisfyingly suspense comes from wondering why the characters are doing what they're doing. The promise the writer has made is that eventually that will become clear and it will be a plausible and satisfying reason. And so, so stay with it. The, the novel must be well-written enough so that the reader wants to stay with it and find that out. So the next life belongs to the readers of this volume, The Coming Darkness. The next life of it, for me, it's the background, isn't it? It's the world of the sequel, The Coming Storm which I'm currently writing.
0: Well, I can't recommend either highly enough. I haven't obviously read The Coming Storm, but if The Coming Darkness is anything to go by, this is a wonderful experience waiting for readers. Greg, there's so much more I wanted to talk about. You've had such a fascinating life and continue to do so much for for literature, both you and your wife. I wonder if you'd perhaps leave us with inspiring words for writers who want to follow in your footsteps.
1: I'd say this, that when you're writing, you should be writing just one thing. You shouldn't be trying to write the whole of your novel on every page. You should focus on fulfilling the current drama and make that really gripping and intense in its own right. And then, when you come back to it and you write another scene, you make sure that there's a counterpoint between those two scenes. And what that does, the counterpoint between the two scenes is the area where the reader is given free reign to imagine the possible connections and complete your work. Write one thing at a time, put them in a clever writerly sequence, leaving room for the reader's imagination to complete your world. Greg Moss, thank you so much. You're welcome.
0: The Coming Darkness is published by Moonflower Publishing. It's out now and it is by the wonderful Greg Moss. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Emily Sands, and you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.